getting so good at getting quiet. You're like a very good class of kindergartners, you know? Just a couple of well-placed rebukes, and then you just tighten right up. It's great. All right, good morning. We are in the middle of, I don't even know, are we in the middle yet? Are we halfway through the New Testament, do you think? I haven't counted how many we've done, but we're in the midst of a series doing one week overviews of every book in the New Testament. And this week we are on Ephesians. So Bob's passing them out. If you don't have this, you're going to need this. This is our list of, or not our list, it's our, it's a one page or four page summary of Ephesians, which is pretty impressive because I don't think Ephesians is four pages long, but it's all right here. And then we also have every one that we've done in the past, they're all in here. So if you want to grab something from a previous week, they're all up here. And then one other thing you might want to grab is this. These yellow cards have the web address that you can find the audio recordings of these conversations, as well as the PDF versions of these documents. So if you wanted to listen to these while you're walking or doing whatever you do, you can listen to them all here. Um, and you can, uh, you know, if you'd rather have them on your iPad or something, they got that. Aaron? Oh, okay, yeah, so here's the thing. So, so Aaron helps run all of our sound and AV and video and all this kind of stuff. And about, I don't know, a year ago, six months ago, a while ago, I had this brilliant idea to pull Sundays. So we used to have one audio stream um, for Church of the Holy Spirit sermons and Sunday school. And it just felt like a convoluted mess. And so we pulled out my Sunday school and put it on its own kind of SoundCloud track. And then no one could ever find it. And so no one ever listened to anything ever again. And so it turns out that my brilliant idea was not that brilliant. So I've asked Aaron to kind of merge them back in. And so they're being merged back in for folks that used to listen to this and then lost it. So sorry for that, but Aaron is fixing my problems. Okay, so this week we're going to be in Ephesians. Uh, help yourself, grab them if you need them. And uh, so let's start off like this, like we, like we often do. What do you know about the book of Ephesians? Give me your best stuff. Gail, what you got? Okay, armor of God. Very good. So Ephesians has what probably would be the classic New Testament text on spiritual warfare. It's the thing, those of you that are old enough to remember, um, what's that guy's name, Kelly? Uh, who wrote all the spiritual warfare books in the late 80s? No, not Tim LaHaye. What is it? Frank Peretti, yeah. The Frank Peretti books, like This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. Did you guys read those? like early 90s, late 80s, when I was in college, those things were out. And so that's all based on this idea of like our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, principalities, and this dark world, all that, okay? And then flowing out of that is this passage on spiritual armor that we're, you know, we come, you know, with a helmet of salvation and the belt of truth and all that. That's all in Ephesians. Very good. What else do you guys know about Ephesians? Yeah, Bob? It's good. Yes, okay, very good. So Bob said there's all this stuff about walking, walking the light, walking the unity, walking a manner worthy of the calling you have received. Uh, Bob, where's all that stuff gonna happen in Ephesians? Yes, right, the second half. So Ephesians is, some books divide very neatly. Romans does this, we saw in Romans, the first eight chapters are unmistakable theology. 9, 10, 11 is kind of this weird transitional passage and then 12 and following is all application. So there's generally a pattern of, hey, let me, tell you, let me give you the indicatives and then we'll go to the imperatives. This is the stuff that's true. This is the stuff that you got to do. This is doctrine. This is application. This is orthodoxy. This is orthopraxy, right? And 
Ephesus or the, the letter to the church in Ephesus has that very clear division. The first three chapters are all theology. It's all doctrine. And then bam, from four, one and following, it moves into what do I do about it? And as Bob is saying, there's like, you know, this metaphor of walking shows up. So if you ever, if you're in Ephesians, that last half is going to all be the stuff that you do. The first half is all the stuff that's been done. Okay, Eric? So this is my impression on my results. Deals from a from a, a perspective or a context of military order, you know, military uniform, God submitting to discipline. It's it's got it's got a very different tone to it. Huh. Very appropriate for that kind of audience. Okay, so what Eric is saying is that Ephesus, as a city, regardless of the church, was a significant military outpost for Rome. And therefore, it perhaps isn't surprising that Paul would use, in writing to that city, he would use language as meaningful in that cultural context. And that makes total sense to me, but I didn't happen to know that Ephesus had a significant military presence. That could be, that could be absolutely true. I just didn't know that, okay? But what I will say this, and then do you want to speak to the military thing, Kelly? Um, there's no question that whatever significance Ephesus is to Rome's military structure, again, I just don't know that. A lot of things I don't know. It is absolutely a significant church for the church. This city, what's going on in this city and the things that happen out of this city are a big deal. Um, what are some of the, let's do this. What are some of the indicators? Do you have any, any what, what, can you support that case that Ephesus is a particularly important place? You want to say something, Lily? Uh, maybe the maturity of the audience to which he's writing because it's not, it's not particularly corrective and it's, Really mystical, for lack of a better term. Like I think that the way that he's speaking to them implies that they actually have a certain level of maturity. Like, I think it's true. It's me. Yeah, when we when we go through the letters, remember. So the the letters of the church. What. Oh, let me say, Lily was saying that, that perhaps one of the reasons that Ephesus is important is because it tends to be populated by a more mature believer set of believers. Right? Did I miss? Did I miss summarize you? That's right. Yeah, so if, if you read this letter, most of the letters are what we would call epis, um, um, or rather we call them occasional, meaning they're written to a specific occasion. And usually that occasion is to clean up a mess, right? The Corinthians are screwing this up and the Thessalonians don't want to go to work and uh, the Galatians have fallen into this like, you know, circumcision heresy. There's all the problem. When he writes to the Ephesians, there is corrective language because there always is. Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. However, it's not a very messy mess. The things in Ephesus, are, he's, he's building on a higher level. And I, I think you can make the case, therefore, that perhaps this church is a little bit is ready for maybe the 300 level class, not just the 200 level class. So that's yes. But there's a couple other things that make us think that Ephesus is important. Go ahead. Bingo. That's big news, okay? Timothy is Paul's protege. Timothy is Paul's most important disciple. And Timothy gets sent to Ephesus, right? So you just know this phenomenon. Like you, when you've got your most important, your most valuable employee, you send them to lead to the division that has the greatest possibility of gains, right? You put them in the most important place. And the fact that Timothy goes to Ephesus tells you Ephesus matters, right? And therefore, you end up really, this is the only letter to the church in Ephesus is Ephesians. There's no second Ephesians or third Ephesians. 
But there are two letters to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. So you've really got three letters to Ephesus, right? And then there's even more. Kelly Sue? It's also the place of, well, the temple to Artemis of the Ephesians is there, which is, I think it was one of the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Yes. It was such a, and the silversmith's Yes. It's just being hurt by well, and so Kelly is drawing not from things that are written in the book. So Kelly was just saying that like our, our, uh, Ephesus is the headquarters, the great place where Artemis was worshipped, this major kind of Roman deity. And you're not going to find that in the book of Ephesians. You're going to find that in the book of Acts. And so when you read about Ephesus and Acts, there's a w- strange amount of content. When you, next, time you go, next time you read through Acts, just notice really chapters like, 18, 19, 20, like there's a ton of stuff. Paul spends a lot of time in Ephesus. It's really, they throw this big scene where he's preaching there and all the Artemis worshipers get, go crazy and they start yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it says in Acts for like hours, they keep this up, just chanting her name, right? So it's a big deal. And, and you see, Paul spends a great deal of time there. The elders in Ephesus are the ones that are all weeping and crying before Paul goes off to get arrested in Jerusalem. It's a really big deal for sure. Okay, anybody else? Why we think that Ephesus was really significant? Yeah, Michael. The aspect of um, John, historically, John the Apostle was buried there after his exile, and then Jesus' mother, say that when she was put in here, John was there. Okay. I didn't know this. So Michael is saying that John the Apostle was buried in Ephesus. Just outside, near. Huh. Nowadays, it's close. Probably back then, it was not. Ah, fascinating. Okay, so I, this I didn't know, but so maybe John was buried there. I mean, I, I know that he was exiled to Patmos, but they brought his body and buried him in Ephesus. I've never heard that, but that might be true as well. When you said John the Apostle, what I thought you were going to say is this, and then we'll move on from this, is if you go look at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, you know, so you got all, we got, you know, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, all that. But then there's this other collection of letters to the early churches. These are the letters that Jesus wrote to these churches. And if you, if you just go get out a map or, you know, turn to the end of your Bible and you look at all the churches in Revelation, they form a semicircle around Ephesus. Well, it includes Ephesus and a semicircle around Ephesus. And the general, you know, supposition is that the church in Ephesus did the job. When, when Paul dies, there's a sense of like, man, everyone has deserted me. I don't know where this is going to go. Timothy, it's up to you, buddy. And he passes the baton to Timothy. Well, it seems based on these late letters to the churches that open up Revelation, that Timothy did the job, that Ephesus continued to be the, the, the kind of the missionary outpost to that part of the world. All that to say, the people this letter is written to is, are very important in the whole framework of it all. Okay, Virgil, final word, then we're going to move on. Uh, it seems to me that Paul is more clear that his theology of uh, Gentiles being grafted in, uh, in the first two chapters of we and, and you, we were predestined, you were brought in afterwards. Yes. Uh, so it gets, it gets a lot of, it, it into a discussion of predestination stuff like that, but in, in Paul's original intent, we as Jews, you as Gentiles. Yes, okay, this is incredibly important. So what Virgil is saying is that what you get developed in the letter to the church at Ephesus is probably Paul's most developed 
argument about the integration of the people of God. In particular, we're talking about integrating Jews and Gentiles. Now we saw a little bit of this last week with the Galatians, where Paul is accusing Peter and others, not just of a theological error of requiring ritual obedience of Gentiles, but also of racism, that you're drawing back. When the, when the Gentiles show up, you drew back and refused to eat with them. There's this relational breakdown. And that relational breakdown and the call to that relational integration absolutely permeates this letter. I would say it's probably the most important thing that I would want you to recognize about this letter because it's really unique to the message of Ephesians, okay? So when we take the letter and you split it in half, you're gonna say, okay, we've got all this doctrine in the first three chapters, and then we've got all the application in the last three chapters. That's a really good way to divide the letter. If you split it in half, we've got doctrine, we've got application. That's great. But there's another axis that you could divide it across, and that is that the letter to the church in Ephesus is talking about our vertical reconciliation with God and it's talking about our horizontal reconciliation with each other, in particular between Jews and Gentiles. And it is a major theme. It's, it's one of those things, kind of like in Galatia, you could read that and only see it theologically and not see it relationally. If you have the, you know, the advantage of growing up in a majority culture where those, those issues aren't as, aren't as present to you. In a similar way, when you read Ephesians, because mo most of us are Gentiles, and we already are like, we already, nobody, no Gentile Christian today feels like they're on the outside. Like, because Gentile Christians just are the majority of the church. But to a Gentile at the time that has felt B-teamed, has felt outside, this whole letter is to say, come on in, come on in, come on in. And the racial implications for that are significant. So take a look at this. I'll show you. I've kind of built that as the, as the top piece of this. Paul calls it the mystery, okay? Look at this. We're on the, the front main page. He says that God made known to us the mystery of his will. You're like, well, what's the mystery? Okay, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. Here's the mystery. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, it's a little bit veiled there, but when he talks about bringing all things under one head, he is talking about Jews and Gentiles in one unified body. That's what he's describing there. Same thing. He himself is our peace, who has made the two one. He's not talking about God and us in this moment. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose, this is crazy. We rarely think of the horizontal reconciliation. His purpose on the cross, according to this, was to create in himself one new man out of the two, this is one new body of the church out of Jews and Gentiles, making peace through making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them, Jews and Gentiles, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility with each other. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, that's the Jews, so that through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one spirit. Okay, it permeates this letter. He's deeply interested in this question. If you go through, he's gonna call it the mystery over and over again. Maybe his clearest statement where he tidies it up is the top of that second column in three, two to six, where Paul says, this mystery is, hold on to your hat, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And then he says the same thing, like, you know, 
several more times, right? Mystery, mystery, mystery. He's like, listen, nobody saw this coming. God works with the Jews. It's to Abraham and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12. And then, yeah, 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 it's fine. We'll be nice to those dirty Gentiles some of the time. And Paul says, no, 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 hold on to your hats. All of those dirty Gentiles, they get to come into the party and they don't have to become like us to worship our God. God is building one new body out of the two. Again, this is not that controversial to you, but it was a huge, huge deal at the time. Making sense? So when you read it, we want, to, we want to understand the gospel through the lens, not only of vertical reconciliation, but of horizontal reconciliation, okay? Now here's, that's gonna be, even the way that I frame that as annoyingly as possible, okay? Because here's what we do. We tend to say the gospel is vertical reconciliation, full stop. Now, having said that, there's some other stuff, it's a little icing on the cake, Right? There's other stuff going on, and that's lovely. And then we're going to B-team this notion of horizontal reconciliation. I think Ephesians takes that opportunity away from us. Ephesians is putting this notion of horizontal reconciliation up here in the same chapter. It's a little bit like this. It's a little bit like when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's the single greatest commandment? And what is his answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. There's two, okay? We have a tendency to be like, the gospel is about one thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, but before, before you, don't forget the second thing. Do you, do you hear this? What's the single greatest commandment? Mm, there's two. That's the, the single greatest commandment is this doubleness. Love God, love your neighbor. What is the gospel Reconciliation with God, reconciliation, it's jamming it in in a way that we're like, well, hang on a second, okay? Now, we can, we can acknowledge that Jesus puts it second, right? There are two, and the, second, and the first one comes first, second one comes second, but you can't ignore the fact that he, he shoves it in the same box, that we have a tendency to not be thoughtful about the horizontal, but it just, it, I mean, when you read this letter, it's, you guys, it's just everywhere. Notice it next time you go through it, okay? Stuart. What's Jesus? Who is Jesus? Fully God, fully. That's right. Yes, he is. So, yeah, so you, you also see his nature is, there's this duality to it. He is God, but he became man to reconcile us to himself and us to one another, right? And we just, we don't hit that so much. I'll, I'll show you, I'll, I'll kind of try to prove that to you. If you were to try to find the gospel message, a summary of the gospel message in Ephesians, what chapter would you use? Two. Chapter two. What part would you use? So that nobody can boast. Okay, so what Gary just quoted is from Ephesians. Well, here's what we do. We'll take Ephesians 2 and we'll say, okay, here's the heart of it all. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Some of you may have had to memorize this. It shows up in lots of like gospel presentation summaries. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast, right? And that's fantastic. It's a great, and, we're, and you have to stop somewhere. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is a great thing. But if we wanted to give that a little, bit of a, a little bit of context, then we would probably scroll back to the beginning of the chapter. And some, has anybody, did anybody memorize Ephesians 2, 1 and following? I wouldn't be shocked if Harrison had, have you? No? Okay, I am shocked then, all right. So <laughs> Ephesians 2, 
Do you have it in your brain? I'll, I'll read this to you so we don't mangle it. You've got it down at the bottom of your page. It's going to start, as for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit is now working those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That is like the classic statement of life before Christ, right? Just selfish following these things. It's very much like you get this very parallel passage in Titus 3. And then there's this wonderful but, right? And four says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Then we get to Gary's passage. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, as a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Okay, and we tend to stop right there. We tend to go Ephesians 2, 1 to 9 is the before, what God does, what we get, and it's a really very tidy summary of the gospel message, okay? Ephesians 2, 1 to 9. But then the more enlightened of us will tend to say, yeah, 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 but you forgot verse 10. And if you look at verse 10, verse 10, it says, okay, so here's our natural situation and everything's a mess, but God in his mercy has intervened and now we're saved by grace. But let's not forget verse 10. When you get to verse 10, it says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And now we can finally congratulate ourselves that we understand that the gospel is not merely that we who are sinners are saved by grace, but that we who are sinners and saved by grace are now transformed. He saved us and called us to holy life. It doesn't just stop this easy believism, but it flows out into an outworking of our lives. And we, there's things that we do now. Now that we, he's, he saved us not by our good works, and not from our good works, but to our good works. And now we're happy, and now we can stop and we can close the book because we got the good part out of Ephesians 2. You with me? And I want to suggest to you that those of you that are smart enough to not stop at verse 9 and go to verse 10, you still don't get to stop because the rest of the chapter is the second point. The rest of Ephesians 2 is not just the vertical, vertical rec reconciliation, but the rest of the chapter is the horizontal reconciliation that we tend to not be very mindful of, okay? So look at what he does in the second half of the chapter. This is the central argument of the book, all that we, all that we have in Christ. And then he says immediately, therefore, okay, don't lose this. He's like, he, I didn't stop. I'm not done. Stay in the room and keep listening to me. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves thus circumcision, and that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. He lists five things. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But, 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 just like you had a but in the first half, you get a but in the second half. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have now been brought near through the blood of Christ. He's saying that horizontal thing that was shafted, that's, that too is being repaired by the same thing that solved the vertical. 
It is the blood of Christ that solves the vertical. It is the blood of Christ that solves the horizontal. Look at it. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose, his purpose on the cross was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached Christ. Um, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. That's the Jew-Gentile divide. Through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. He is deeply interested in this racial horizontal reconciliation between Jews and Greeks, between Gentiles and non-Gentiles. You with me? It's a big deal, and we tend to not be mindful of it. And it has, though, though the Jew-Gentile thing has largely become not so much of a hot issue for us, I'm telling you, it has, issue, it has implications for the way that we think about racial relationships, whether it is the Chinese and the Japanese who historically have not liked each other very much, whether it is the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda who have not liked each other very much, whether it is the racial issues that embroil our own country, whether that's between African-Americans and Caucasians, it doesn't matter. Every culture, every group of people throughout human history has done this us and them game. There's always an us and them game all the time, right? And every time it rears its head, what Paul is saying right here about God's interest in a reconciliation among different people groups matters and is binding upon us. Make sense? So when you read, next time you do it, this week, if you're going through Ephesians, you'll notice all sorts of stuff about vertical. Do not miss the stuff about the horizontal. Okay, questions or anybody want to interact with that a little bit? You feel good? Look for it. You'll see it's everywhere. I gave you a bunch of tags for it. Yeah, Dan? Uh, I'm just thinking that because Paul was thinking about I think this mystery was as great to him as anybody around. For sure. As shocked as anybody that God would want the Gentiles. Absolutely. And not, not, Dan is saying the fact that Paul is a Jew makes makes this be it had to be as big of a shock to him as it was to anybody and i say amen to that not just a jew but a pharisee he is of the club he is the line he's the poster child of the line drawers right like hey you are you and we are us and you stay out of our clubhouse right that is that is the world that he comes from if paul was a gentile if there was you know an early gentile who was the voice who was the spokesperson for this who was saying gentiles demand a seat at the table that wouldn't come with nearly as much credibility as someone who is the Pharisee of Pharisees who is saying, open the doors and let the people in because this is a mystery, this is a shock. We, nobody saw this coming, but I'm telling you, this is what God has been doing. The cross had, there was more going on on the cross than we have a tendency to realize. And Paul being, you know, in some regard, a hostile witness to this point only, only adds to the credibility of it, for sure. Lily? I think also it leads into the theme of unity in Ephesians. Absolutely. Cannot stand, and so I feel like um, even from chapter two, he moves into that, and then he hits on it again in four and five, and so it's it's just it's a lot. I don't know, it's like a feast of the unity. Uh, this is 100% true. So remember, when I said how you can you can look at this book, there's the theology in the first three chapters, there's the application in the last three chapters, and then I'm suggesting a different axis. There's vertical reconciliation, there's horizontal reconciliation. So far, I've constrained myself to looking at the the uh, theological 
horizontalness, right? This is all Ephesians 2. The first three chapters are all the theology. And so in the theology section in chapter 2, he's like, hey, you know this is all true. We're all, there's one body. This is what Jesus did. It's all indicative. When we move over into the imperatives, we move into chapter 4, that's what chapter 4 is about. He's going to say, and so in light of the horizontalness of chapter 2, live out the horizontalness in chapter 4. That's exactly what he's going to do. So it's not, it's not constrained to some theoretical theology, but he's going to say, look, look at chapter, I have put this for you in the, up here, the mystery of the Jews and the Gentiles together in one body. Chapter 4, verse 3, it's on that right column. Paul says, therefore, in light of all of this, make every effort. And by the way, it takes effort, okay? Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He's saying in light of Jesus's unifying work on the cross, be nice to each other, welcome one another, put forward the work to live with their musical styles, their worship practices, their, their, their like, Invite people into the party. That's what he's saying. And again, it, it has mattered in every culture throughout human history where there is ethnic diversity and ethnic tension. Paul's saying, you guys, tighten up. We're Christians. This is what Jesus was doing on the cross. Good enough? Did I beat that to death yet? Okay. All right, let's go. Turn the, let's do, go to, go to the back. We'll look at the, we'll look at the inside in a little bit, but we'll go to the back. So I've already said this a hundred times. It divides up. You'll just notice it very easily. What, what he does in Ephesus of theology and application is easy to see. It's not always quite so crystal clear, but it'd be useful for you to watch. When next time you're reading, when you're reading through your Bible, just be like, okay, are we in a section that's about theology or application? How am I to understand that? You'll see that. Um, uh, other, well, I, I kind of had you turn the page too soon. Favorite, so we mentioned, I was going to ask you, what are your favorite passages in Ephesians? We've already looked at the spiritual armor a little bit, at least we mentioned it. I'll tell you more about that in a second. Are there other favorite passages in Ephesians that it's, Famous to you for things you'd be like, oh, that's in Ephesians. It's got a, it's got a couple of things that are like the highlight spots. Robin, it's absolutely Ephesians five is. I don't think there's any contest that this is the central marriage text in the New Testament. Ephesians five. Okay. Now you're also you could also look at First Corinthians seven. That's a very significant marriage text. And Colossians picks this up a little bit. I'll tell you about the Colossians thing in a minute. But if you go to a wedding and they're going to quote from the New Testament about marriage, they might do 1 Corinthians 13, which is a ripoff because that's not actually about marriage. It's fine, but it's not what it is. But Ephesians 5 is the marriage text. Now, what Paul is doing there, this is an important thing to notice. Paul does this repeatedly throughout all of his letters. The people in his community, something is wrong. They're not doing something they're supposed to do. And what Paul loves to do, instead of just saying, hey, smack you in the head and knock it off and do a better job, his general strategy is so wise is he takes whatever their problem is and then he looks at it through the lens of the gospel, okay? So in Corinthians, in Corinth, they're tight-fisted and they're not being very generous and he wants to compel them to be a generous people. And so he says to them, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And he takes the cross and he looks at it in economic terms. And he says, do you not see the economic implications of the gospel and that you should be generous like Jesus was generous when he poured out his blood for you, right? In Ephesus, he's gonna do the same thing. There's a problem with their marriages. 
The men aren't loving their wives very well. The wives are not respecting their husbands very well. And he's like, hey, you guys, this is the gospel. You see this, right? Here's what marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a picture that depicts, that shows, that showcases, that magnifies and glorifies the great love of God for his people. It's a drama in which the husband is cast in the role of Jesus. And his job is to love his bride unconditionally and sacrificially and purifyingly. And it's a drama in which the bride, the wife, is representative of the people of God, the church. And her job is to honor and to follow and to respect her husband in the same way the church ought to honor and follow and respect her Lord. So maybe your marriages could be a little bit more like the Jesus that you claim to worship and follow. That's what he's doing, okay? He does it, he does it on multiple issues in multiple places. But in Ephesians, you get, I would say, the most exalted iteration of that, certainly regarding marriage. And, he, and he, he uses, by the way, he uses the language of mystery here as well, which is interesting because it's not the same thing of Jew and Gentile, but it's similar to it because it's also the sense of the unity. In the two, whereas the two, the Jew and the Gentile are the two becoming one, he says there's something mysterious about that. He's gonna say that, use that same exact word in reference to what ought to be true in a marriage, that there are these two different people who are coming together in a oneness that is puzzling and strange and beautiful and desirable. That's all in Ephesians. So when you get there, notice how much he's using the gospel as a solution to that problem. It's just what he does pretty consistently in his writings. Okay, make sense? So we got marriage. What else? Any other favorite passages? Yeah, Dorian? Um, I believe it's 429 about how we should talk to one another. Yes. Edifying. Yes. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But that which is, how does it go? Do you have it memorized? Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, only to which, only, and I'm paraphrasing, that's edifying is going up to the listener. Yeah, that's right. When I was in college, we used to say, edify, stupid. And that was just helpful to remember that, right? So, <laughs> remember those days? Edify, stupid. All right. So, uh, it's full of great stuff. Any other favorite passages? A lot of people love Ephesians 1. John, what do you want to say? Ephesians 2. And we kind of hit that a little bit earlier, right? That is one of these very, very tight summary messages of the... Of the oh, well, you go listen to the tape. It was good stuff. We had a good conversation about that. People love the blessings in Christ. This is worth looking at. I've got it here at the top. Ephesians 1. Paul lists off all these blessings that we have in Christ. And it's kind of like what Virgil was saying. You can, if you watch the pronouns, there's the we, and then there's the, like we, it's the, really the things ultimately for the Jews, but then the Gentiles get partakers of all of it. The thing I'll have you see there, I underlined the way that we state, or the way that Paul states these blessings. The blessing number one is he chose us to be holy and blameless. Number two, he predestined us to be adopted Number three, he's given us redemption through his blood. Number four, the forgiveness of sins. Number five, he made known to us the mystery of his will. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. Uh, number six, um, NIV says we were chosen. That's a kind of a poor translation. It really should say we were made heirs. And then finally, uh, we were marked in him with a seal, with the promised Holy Spirit. It's a great, you could go through and unpack, what does that mean that I'm adopted as his child? What does it mean that I've been um, chosen, called to be holy and blameless. How does that work? You can undo that. But what I would want you not to miss, everything that he has done, everything that he has done, redounds back to his own glory. It's been a while since we've really gone after this in depth, but maybe, we could, maybe we'll do that sometime after we finish this whole series. But is it controversial to you to know that everything he does 
he does to his own glory. I remember where I was at a conference. I was on staff with Campus Crusade. I was at a conference in, in, uh, in Florida, was it? Daytona Beach, Florida. And some guy named Greg Norfleet preached a sermon. And he got up and said, God loves to be famous. And everything he does, he does to the end of his own glory. And I was like, what? <laughs> Did you not do everything to the end of my benefit and blessing? And this is something that we could unpack this at great length, but you guys, there's no conflict here. He has chosen to be glorified, to be honored, to be, to be loved and adored for his grace and his mercy. His determination to receive glory is not at odds with your well-being. It is the foundation of your well-being because every one of these things that he does, all of these blessings, all of this kindness, all of this benevolence, all of this mercy that he showers out, According to Paul, it is done to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. All that he does, he does, so that we will see and delight and magnify his supremacy. And he is, the way John Piper puts this, he says that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And that we are most satisfied when God is most glorified. And all of that gets tangled up there in Ephesians 1. So when you go through Ephesians 1, you could, you, could, you could unbraid it to see all the goodness that he gives to you and how the great motive behind all that is that people that don't deserve to see his beauty would see it ever more richly. Okay, that's all gonna be in there. Good enough? And then the final thing, go back to where Gil started us with on the spiritual armor. One thing I just listed there, just so you can see it, the left column is Ephesians 6. The right column is all from Isaiah Paul's not making any of that up. You'll, you'll be obvious to you. If you go through and you read those three passages from Isaiah, he is, I'm not even sure why I did this for the spiritual armor because he does it all the time. All of the New Testament writers were so soaked in Old Testament. This is just a very obvious example where he's using language and ideas that he's taken from Isaiah and he's applying them in Ephesians 6. And so if you want to, you can go back and look up the, the Isaiah language and see how Paul is using it. And there's a principle, whenever the New Testament takes Old Testament words it always takes Old Testament meaning with it. The language, if you pull up, the, if you grab the wheat, you know, grab the, the plant of the words, the roots that come with the plant are the meaning of those words. So whatever was going on in Isaiah, Paul is saying that is what's going on in, in the six. Not just, you don't get to take the words, you get the words and the meanings. That's what he's doing here, okay? Good enough? Robin? Speaking to a word that you see is Yes. And when you think about a husband loving his wife, there's not fear there. A parent loving their child, there's not fear there. This is an awe. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. Okay. So Robin's question is, when we see, and this shows up in lots of different places, when we see things about fearing God, that feels like a weird relational dynamic. And does it not mean, there's a very strong tendency to say, it doesn't mean fear, like in the sense of being afraid, it just means that we should have awe or respect or adoration for him, okay? I would, I, I'm not in that boat. I don't think that that's what we do. I think the problem, the, the reason we struggle with the fear concept is because we have a tendency to think, I'm good, and therefore anything that I fear must be bad. Like, I fear robbers. I fear terrorists. I fear bad things. And I don't want to fear God because he's not bad, and so it must mean something else. But I would say just kind of change your framework on this. And what if you're not good? 
but he is. Now you have a different motive to fear him. We do fear him, not like we fear robbers, but like robbers fear police, right? Like, not like I fear a terrorist, but by, why ter- like a terrorist might fear the U.S. military, right? So the reason we fear God is because we recognize that he is holy and I am not. And absent his grace and his mercy towards undeserving people like me, I would be in a dreadful place, right? It's the end of Psalm 2 says that we should kiss the sun lest he be angry for his wrath can rise up like a moment. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. We deserve, we have earned to be at odds with him. Not because he is bad, but because we are. But he has graciously made a way that guilty people can still survive in his presence. I think that's, we should, under, the, the, the fear stuff gets cleared up if you kind of clear out of your mind the idea that it, it means that I'm good and he's bad. In fact, it means quite the opposite. Okay, all right. Now, last thing I'll just point out to you, then I'm gonna have Trish come up. If you open up to the middle, lots and lots of words. And all I've done here for you, this took Kelly and I roughly forever, okay? Um, Ephesians has a sister text. It is Colossians. Overwhelmingly, if you read through, if you read Ephesians and then you read Colossians, you're gonna see like, oh, clearly like these letters are came from the same person probably at the same time to different audiences, same language, same ideas, same organization. There are different, there's a different focus and you can see some of those differences, but we just went through and just tried to compile, and I'm sure we missed some, but we tried to compile a summary of, this is where he uses, says the same thing in the same way, the same language. So you just might compare that, or you know, you could just go through and read Ephesians and then read Colossians and do your own comparison, but that would really dishonor an enormous amount of time, okay? So read our, read our chart, it's really great, okay. That is all for Ephesians. Um, the next two weeks, I'm not going to be here. We're doing a parenting thing in here. Eric and Mary Wynn, whoo, where are they? I saw them roaming around earlier. Eric Imhoff, Mary Wynn Imhoff, they're going to be in here doing some stuff on parenting. I'll be speaking at a couple of conferences the next two weekends, so I won't be here. And then the week after that, we're going to begin a new series, not in this room, but in the chapel, and Trish Cunningham is going to be teaching it. And rather than explain it, I'm going to introduce Trish. So I'll give you a microphone and love you to tell them what you're doing and then I'll close this up in just a minute. Thanks, Tim. Uh, hello? Okay. Perfect. Good. Hello. <laughs> um, so I'm planning on starting on October 8th a class on Christian worldview foundations. If you were here in mid-July, you may have heard my overview on biblical versus secular worldviews and why worldview matters. The class we'll dive into um, this fall will be more basics on the Christian worldview and some basic apologetics so that we can all be equipped to answer questions about our faith with love and scriptural truth. Um, It's Jesus's work to redeem souls and transform lives, but all of us can do a little tilling and gardening uh, to help prepare for that bountiful harvest. Um, Next slide. So this is the syllabus of the six classes that Babs and I will be leading um, this fall. These classes will give all of us a better foundation and understanding of why we believe what we believe and should help you to answer questions that either you may have had or your children or friends may have asked. As you can see, we'll touch on a lot of concepts that may be familiar to you, uh, but you may not have thought through them fully Uh, in terms of how they relate to biblical worldview and our beliefs. 
So we're going to dive into God's good plan for humans, sex, marriage, children, family, work, identity, and purpose versus the world's version of all those ideas. Next slide. The fall classes will provide the foundation for next spring, which will be worldview applications. Uh, my plan is to spend a week on each current major controversial issue and discuss the biblical versus the secular worldview. Abortion, LGBTQ issues, transgenderism, medicine and medical assistance in dying, critical theory and social justice, poverty and homelessness, addiction, mental health and suicide, pornography and human trafficking, progressive Christianity and its dangers, and the pursuit of beauty to honor God through the arts. And if there's interest, there are so many other topics we could delve into. New age and the return of the old gods, artificial intelligence and transhumanism, the law and religious liberty, and the list goes on. My hope is that for many of these topics, uh, if there's a related local ministry, I will try to bring in a guest speaker for part of the class to share their insights about what's going in right in our backyard. And also to give anyone who might feel called to address one of these issues a way to reach out in this community. I'm also going to talk about the history of how these ideologies arose to give you better context. And we'll discuss both general and specific tactics for having these difficult conversations. So last slide. Right now we're trying to gauge interest in these classes. I know that you're in the middle of Tim's great class on the New Testament and you may want to see all of that through. I could postpone the foundations class to the winter if that is the case. But if there are enough of you that want to take this worldview foundations class this fall, um, then I'll start the class on October 8th and run it through November 12th. You can let us know your interest and register for the foundations class by texting worldview, all one word, to 540-251-2200. So any questions? Yes. It's going to be in the chapel, so I don't know if we it's, don't have not, recording system it's in there. not set up to do that. So. But this will be recorded, right? So if you wanted to do both, your best bet would be to go to Trisha's class and do that one live, and then this one will be taped. And you know, everything we do here is taped. You can get it, and then there's a document. So if this is intriguing to you, we really encourage you guys. I think it's going to be a great conversation. And this list of top, well, you, that list of topics is crucial stuff. So, and of course, we'll, this will keep doing. You're welcome to come to this, but we really hope that there'll be a, a good outpouring um, to jump into these really, really crucial things. And this will all be taped, so you can you can grab this at another time too. Cool, cool. So it's really important to us that we do need to gauge the interest. So if you're like, yeah, I want to do that. Um, just text. This is the same thing we use for everything, 540-251-2200. Just text the word, word, world view, and then that'll let us know, and then we'll be able to make the final, you know, decision to launch the thing in a couple weeks. Cool, cool? All right. Thanks. Trish has developed a ridiculous expertise on this topic, and I really think it's going to be a great deal of value. I hope you guys will consider checking it out. Thanks a bunch. All righty. That's all we got for now. We'll see you guys later.